it's Jeff Mayhew, it's John Beatty, it's Politics and Parenting, where we talk about politics, but we talk about it differently. John, how are you doing today? I'm doing very well, Jeff. Uh, I think we were talking about in the beginning of the week, this is like the actual first week of school. So I am, uh, I spent the today, this day Sunday, I spent today kind of resting and recovering from a busy week. Um, but what I will say is, um, you know, we got our family pictures taken for our Christmas card. So and it's September and we're, we're starting to plan that out because I don't know if you know this, but it's much cheaper to buy Christmas cards when it's not the Christmas season. Um, so, <laughs> and then, uh, you know, it's, it's interesting too, when you are trying to get your kids to come along and, uh, you know, smile for the pictures, make sure that they have the right poses, that it's a, uh, it's a, a cute smile, not a super cheesy smile. Um, you know, sometimes you got to give them some some incentives like gummy snacks or gummy bears or something. So um, it, I just think that sometimes you're going to have to like know your fights and your your battles. And um, that's why it's good to keep things in reserve. So when you aren't constantly feeding uh, junk food to your kids, you can use that as a bribe when uh, when the time comes. And I know I, I think so much of our political rhetoric is is just junk food. And then when you when you actually have to um, communicate something and to get people to come along with you and, uh, you know, maybe agree with you so that you can get something done, it's 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 not possible because everyone's just been this, fed this constant diet of junk food of um, this person's the worst, they're the worst, can you believe them? And then when someone really is the worst, uh, they just, you know, it's, it's, it's like the boy who cried wolf, uh, really. But um, instead of that, it's the family that took pictures of brought gummy snacks and got their kids to smile for the photos. So um, it's all good. So, um, and how are you, how are you doing? Uh, you know, I'm good. I'm tired. Uh, a lot of work in, a lot of writing, um, you know, same old, same old trying to, uh, trying to figure out how we, we craft an argument to get people to come along with us without giving them junk food. <laughs> yeah. No, that's so true. So, um, one of those articles that you've been writing, you, you had the I got the honor of re receiving a, a version of it. And um, you talk with this guy, John C. Calhoun. I don't know, have you heard of him before? Other than uh, I know you've heard about him because you wrote a, you wrote a book, not wrote a book, read a book. And uh, and I've heard about him too. But um, I think one of the things you talk about in this article is that he is such an important part of American history. Um, but he kind of, I would say understandably so, he gets a bad rap because he ends up being on the wrong side of a, of a pivotal part of American history, um, specifically, he was he was one of the nullifiers. Uh, the people arguing that that the states could nullify whatever um, rules Congress set in place, kind of a, kind of against the constitutional order that that we had all agreed to uh, at the beginning of the eighteen uh, hundreds. So, so, um, so if I could jump in there, so Calhoun, yeah. Calhoun's argument is actually that they were violating the constitution by not getting a concurrent majority in their rulings and so he was saying that and, and who's they sorry that's the southern the fed, states or the, the federal, federal government right mm -hmm. the government they were they were putting this tax on that was particularly harmful or tariff that was particularly harmful for the southern states in south carolina and um, they did it with a majority rule, and he wanted a concurrent majority, which is a constitutional majority, which is like you know three, you know three, um, you know three quarters yeah. of the votes as opposed to just fifty one percent. So, and he he thought he felt it necessary that the states could nullify, and in reality, he 
was correct. He did nullify that law because Andrew Jackson and the rest did change the law um, to something that North Carolina was okay with. Now, they also instituted the force bill at this time, which basically took out the possibility of nullifying the future because it gave the executive like arms power to go into the state if a state were to want to do this in the future. Um, yeah, and I think that's an interesting part too. Like I'm reading this, the book, The American Republic by Rusty's Brownson, and he kind of talks about um, the idea of, of uh, who governs who and sort of where that draws. And um, Orestes is writing this book at kind of the tail end of the Civil War. Um, if I get my dates right, maybe the end of the Civil War. But it is it is very much about like who has the, the authority or something. And he also kind of brings up this point, like you don't just want a majority, a, a might makes right kind of rule. Like that, um, when you're in such a large situation, like you end up getting a lot of hurt feelings and you're not going to have sort of the the peace and the harmony that government is supposed to help foster. Like, you, you know, when someone feels like they're getting trampled on, um, they get resentful. And then if it kind of keeps happening, they get uh, really angry. And then at some point, like uh, you might find them uh, bringing out arms or succeeding or something. Um, so not like not something good you want to go towards. Um, and I, I think that there is sort of that prudence to the, the what what Calhoun talks about the constitutional majority sort of and as we would say like in the Senate it's that um, super what are the super majority in the Senate or uh, yeah it's a, where you got the sixty votes right now because then you can stop debate um, so that you know people complain about that but there is sort of a there is a practical prudential aspect to having uh, people who are running the show not being able to just flex their will. If they think they can they can count the votes and get the 50 percent plus one it, there is a prudence when you're when you make a big decision that's going to affect a lot of people you like you kind of want a lot more buy-in than just the bare minimum um and i i think that that's such a, a point that people don't get for this sort of this populist environment that we talk about like you sent that graph right now where the parties are very ideologically uh parties parties are ideologically oriented uh ideologically homogenous but that they're so far apart um, and I just think like that's, there is that part where it sort of becomes a, you know, uh, you you win the presidency by a couple electoral college votes, you win it by, you know, may, perhaps you don't even get the majority in the popular vote, which again, we don't, that doesn't count necessarily towards our elections, but it's a good barometer of kind of where the country stands. Um, so you don't win the popular vote, you win the electoral college, and then you're able to govern. And if you don't kind of try to bridge that gap like that's where you can you can come across issues where people are going to be resentful uh, and feel like you're not being listened to yeah i mean that's ultimately what happens in societies and you know calhoun writes about this madison writes about it you know you're going to have virtuous and sinful people mm -hmm. and they're going to find their ways in the government and they're going to kind of pull each other apart right like the the virtuous one is going to try to create this you know, society of goodness and the, the sinful one is just going to try to bend and break every rule they can to get what they want. And there's got to be some sort of balance, right? And you've got these two opposing ideas and the balance has to lend itself to like the major the actual majority, right? Like not 51% because as Calhoun writes is like 51% is basically 
a numerical majority is it's not really the will of the people. There could be a certain amount of people that are misguided in their decision making. Mm-hmm. And now like it's easier for a minority to rule of a numerical majority, if that makes sense. So like right. people with wealth and and that lends itself to despotism, you know, where that small minority can take hold of that, or it can lend itself to anarchy. And Calhoun compares it, you know, democracy kind of leads to anarchy because democracy is numerical majority. And you know what? What is that? It's 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 dangerous for the people to believe that's what they you know that's what they want because who is the minority in government? And in reality, it's all of us at some point in time. There's always going to be an issue that we are going to be in the minority side of. Right. And so, you know, I think at best, and I think you know our founders thought it best, which is why we have the system. And Calhoun kind of saw the system the same way, which is. You have this concurrent majority, this constitutional majority, and you say, okay, well, if you really want to get something done, you've got to put it into the Constitution. That means that it's permanent and we're, you know, it's going to be really hard to change. Now, we still need to govern. So we still govern on a day to day basis with a numerical majority. However, there should be some form of nullification to that and say, and not like maybe not nullification in permanence. But nullification into, you know, either where they, the law has to be changed. You know, it's a resolution that's passed and the law has to be either you pass it with a, if you want the same law, it's got to reach the concurrent majority. Go get more people to agree to it or now revise it. So we don't want to nullify it anymore because it's too harmful to this other group, you know? Isn't that what the the Supreme Court is supposed to do? Or like there's the court system in a whole, it's like, they're supposed to kind of be that external force that is vetting things against the constitution and since they're not elected they don't have to worry about where they end up in a um well i mean in some kind of election but like isn't that the idea like that is kind of your but that's a that's a minority group ruling for us right that's like 10 people deciding well well yeah now they rule i mean like they yes but but now they rule but they but they should be ruling more it should just be like this doesn't really like like when you have a, a a law that gets in place and it their job is to say like this is not constitutional. I think the problem we come into now is that they've got their whole like five page dissertations on every uh, ruling that then kind of becomes um, de facto uh, law that everyone just sort of follows. And I could think of like all these things in the educational sphere where it's some kind of legal ruling that then is basically um, legislation, you know, for yeah. for all practical well, purposes. And so- but that's but that's part of the problem too because you got to think like the courts did not have the power they had when we wrote our constitution right right so seven, the judicial act of 1789 and then the uh Marbury versus Madison you know ruling that establishes the court as this massive power in our government but in reality the idea i believe you know is more for this Calhoun you know Madison constitutional concurrent concurrent majority type of idea Mm -hmm. um and then you know i you know i've been on both sides of this nullification idea myself as i've been reading and studying but i i understand i understand calhoun's point and i think it's a very good one now he applied it in a way that was you know his nullification the nullification crisis whether despite how he applied it the people of the time viewed that as a test case for nullifying slavery. Right. 
uh, like an abolishment of slavery. Right. That's that's what everybody viewed it. Now Calhoun, I believe, you know, through studying, he believed that and the other thing, which was his true belief in principle and government. I I do believe that he he thought both things on this. Um, now moving forward, the problem that I have with Calhoun a little bit is, you know, he kind of betrayed his principles to preserve the slavery you know with with the annexation of texas and bringing texas into the union he saw an opportunity you know jefferson had brought um the louisiana purchase you know the territories there in through a joint resolution of congress it was a numerical majority um calhoun and tyler essentially do the same thing if i'm not mistaken and what this does is it cements that numerical majority into, you know, it just one more precedent, you know, in our government of a numerical majority. And now from that point forward, you have this all out fight for just 51%. You right. know, it, it, it's, it's all about balancing the power between the slaveholding and non-slaveholding states and who can get the majority votes to either preserve it or abolish it. And mm -hmm. it's just a race to this point. And at, from that moment forward, it's essentially a race to civil war, regardless of, you know, morality or anything like that. There's a lot of muddled things about the situation with, you know, the whole idea that the, the North was these virtuous people that really wanted to just abolish slavery. I mean, they profited from it significantly. Well, right. Cause all the cotton comes up to their cotton, their, their uh, clothing mills. And then they, produce the fabric and then they ship that off to europe like no they're all we're all you know they're all making money off it which is not you know not good right and 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 so you know you get you get this situation so calhoun essentially kind of betrays his principles is the point to what we're talking about here mm -hmm. and um but i mean he he tries to hold true to them through the whole you know 18 you know, to the point where he died in 1850, where I write, he writes this book that I write about, the dissertation on government. Um, and he, you know, his points are very well laid out. I mean, he explains how other governments go through the same issue that we do, and which is this expansion of power without, you know, without expanding the power within, right? So the empire right. grows larger, but the governmental structure doesn't seem to grow with it. Which is essentially what we've had, you know, which is my point about, you know, uncapping the house. Right. No, I'm looking at this. It's, it's all about sort of that, that balance. Um, and funny, funny enough, I sent you this. Uh, my wife is doing this catechism in a year podcast, and she sent me the original quotation. Um, and I will see if I can just pull it up real quick. But it's, it's straight out of Catholic teaching. So, you know, it's not just uh, we're not just making it up. But it is, uh, sorry, it's not showing up. Um, but just I, honestly, like it talks about the the sphere of power. It's the fact that society is better when you divide things into their appropriate locations. And um, if that's sort of the defense of the country, that's, that sounds like a federal uh, job right there. But if it's sort of the administration of the, of the public school system, like that seems like a very much a county level. Um, and I know like uh, other other states like New Jersey, it's it's even on a smaller uh, basis where like you get that local control of schooling. So it's kind of trying to figure out who's the best 
person or group of people to just make decisions about a particular responsibility at each level. Um, so, you know, it wouldn't make sense for Prince William County, Loudoun County to uh, necessarily try to like raise an army to defend the United States. Like that's a big undertaking that's best, you know, Loudoun County, Prince William County can help that effort. And they do by sending uh, legislatures to the federal government, uh, to the cut to Congress, um, to by sending uh, soldiers to the army. Um, but like that decision is better left at like the national level, but it really doesn't make sense for whatever the department of education does to kind of like try to micromanage dis school districts all over the country. And like they kind of do because they've got this like grant program that Congress puts where if you fill out a form, check the right boxes, you can get money. And so like, there's a little bit of control like that. But at the end of the day, like that, it just, it doesn't really make sense for every particular jurisdiction. Like it much makes more sense for a particular county to know their students, know the makeup of their families, know their tax base and how they're going to fund it and sort of like build their school system off of that. So, um, you know, like that's, that at the end of the day is the sphere of power. And then kind of, you can, you can say like, well, um, when you've got something like uh, the just the 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 Congress um, trying to four hundred thirty five people trying to dictate how education works at a local level like you can see like it's going to break down so um, well, at the very why, least to be, yeah so that's why like you've got one very large sphere right and that's like the United States government and then you've just got you've got hundreds and thousands of little smears inside right because we're divided into you know, we've got one big sphere, that's the United States, and then you got 50 spheres inside of that. And then inside of that, you've got all of the little republics there, right? And then you've got our federal government that's divided in there for 430 or 535 with the Senate and the House, right? So you've got just these multiple spheres inside of these spheres, just each working inside of each other, like reinforcing it. Think of it like, you know, if it was just one big empty ball, it you just could pop it, right? But mm -hmm. if you've got hundreds of thousands of little spheres in there reinforcing it, it's 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 incredibly durable and strong. Yeah. And because you know, like if they were if they were all just one big ball and everybody was just shoved in there, everybody would kind of get squished and crushed, and it wouldn't be comfortable for everyone. But because there's all these little spheres protecting you know, us from bumping up against each other and running into one another. It also gives us freedom essentially to move around and to like have a little bit of space, a little bit of independence. Um, it's, it is literally the perfect system, <laughs> you know, if run effectively, um, which is kind of what we've got off because we, we don't look at government, right? Like we look at our politics today as like, what do we want? Right. And then we go and we find the person that tells us what we want. We vote for that person. And that person tries to give us what we want through gaining a majority. And, you know, it's so misleading to what government and politics are like specifically our government is supposed to be, which is, you know, this idea of it's a debate. You know, it's it's debating real ideas about the rules. You know, politicians like to get up on stage and tell us like, what type of laws they're going to write for us. They're going to, you know, uh, ban this or, you know, uh, executive order that. But at the end of the day, it's like, what about the like rules of governing? What about the legislation process? What about who has these powers? You know, one of the things about Calhoun, if we go, can go back to him for a second, where he kind of betrayed his principle is, you know, back to this idea of the numerical majority 
and he he reinforces that precedent and you know we can act and say we want a certain thing right but what we really should want is the process to be fair and right. you know because like i tell people all the time like life is not fair and it's not equal and it's not going to be it's never going to be that way but what we can do as a society and with a strong functioning republican government is we can create opportunities mm -hmm. right we can create more groups for more people to be a part of right because we are a large and diverse union we have a lot of different factions and interests at stake here and we have basically boiled our groups down into two you're republican or you're democrat and you and it's and it's a fight from numerical majority control to get anything done and i think if you just zoom out a little bit and you just say okay let's focus on the real problem here the real problem is people don't have any choice they have two choices that's it so you know let's think about how we fix that how do we at the end of the day successful government and successful uh, economies are those who have plentiful opportunity. So we as people, we as legislators, we as anybody with a microphone in front of their face should be talking about how do we create more opportunity for people? How do we make it easier for regular citizens to be involved? Well, that's a good point too, that you're you're trying to bring people into those two groups and it's only those two groups. And then when you've got a majority, one of those groups, they say, well, I speak for everyone in my group, but that, that may not be the case. Like I could think, of the um all the tariff decisions uh like there's the what was the um free trade agreement at the beginning of the trump administration that had been uh they've been working on for like 10 years or something and as soon as trump got into office he basically scrapped it um and it was this whole idea of like trying to build a free trade in the pacific area to kind of counteract the influence of china and so um you know i i was i based on my understanding like i think that's generally a good thing but the majority in terms of like the presidency and whatever was in Congress basically decided to scrap all that because that's what they want. So even though I, maybe I'm a Republican in that case um, and a part of this majority, maybe I'm not actually a majority in that, in that particular issue. So that's the other like um, disingenuous thing of, of ruling by a, of a, slight, a numerical majority is that you may have numbers in one sense in terms of like votes you could control, but you may not actually have a majority of the people in terms of what you make, what kind of decisions you make. Um, and I'm, I'm going to go to this uh, line from Brownson. It says that this tendency to a centralized democracy has more to do with provoking secession and rebellion than the anti-slavery sentiments of the Northern central and Western states. And like, that's what we're doing. We're taking, we're, we're trying to, as you said, like we're, uh, we're concentrating everything into this one sphere, centralizing this democracy. And that's where, uh, it becomes so easier for resentment to bubble up and for things to, for uh, feelings to get hurt and for um, uh, for the, the problems that we see. It's not necessarily the fact that um, people have different ideas. Like it's good to have different ideas and to sort of work them out and debate about them that you can come to some kind of consensus. Um, but it's when you, when you are trying to centralize everything and, and bring it into that one area, that's where we get into trouble. Yeah, I mean, and that's that's essentially what happened right around the Jackson administration, right? He mm -hmm. he's, he concentrated power. Um, Calhoun, despite his beliefs, kind of helped that happen, right? right? He 
you know, he, he, while he, he helped set the precedent for the numerical majority in, um, in the annexation of Texas, and then you go forward and now Polk, who's now the president in the next administration, he, he wants war with Mexico, right? right? Because, and, and so what does he do? He finds a way to subvert the will of Congress and kind of instigate war with Mexico, which you know, Calhoun, understanding that setting precedents are hard to undo, is yeah. very against this because he thinks that it's going to strip Congress of war powers. And guess what? Sure enough, it did. He, he sure enough, he did. Right. And so, like, you have this, like I said, from the very beginning, we've had this very tight knit, beautiful republic. And you just, I don't think you had enough good people <laughs> working all the time in the system to protect it. You know, so, so these, you know, and not only that, but like within the battles of good people fighting for the things that they want, they're doing damage to the system themselves, right? So we've talked about a few of them. You've got this, you know, the Judiciary Act. You've got the uh, the Jackson administration concentrating power. You've got the Tyler and Tyler administration solidifying numerical uh, majority. You've got the Polk administration um, grasping war powers from Congress and consistent. Con continuing the consolidation of power into mm -hmm. essentially the, the executive and the, and the parties. And, you know, it leads us to civil war. Now we've kind of got a little back and forth on that, you know, had war, had, uh, came back together as a union, but we've never really, we've never really repaired ourselves. We've never repaired our Republic. And so, you know, we have to start understanding this. Like we have to stop, like we just, you know, when I talk to politicians, it just drives me nuts to just be like, well, this is the way that it is. And it's like, it doesn't have to be this way. It you're is trying to tell way. people that you're going to be the leader and you just say, well, it's, I'm sorry, that's just the way like, it is. I'm, every single politician running for office right now in state, delegate, whatever, if, if you give me an answer of, well, I can't do anything to change it. So I'm not going to do anything like, or I have to win office first. No, talk about the ideas, debate, 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 like stop. You, you control the system by keeping the ideas out. It's your job to talk about them, right? Just because you don't like them or you haven't studied them or whatever, doesn't mean that you can't have a discussion about it. Like we, we have to get past this and we've got to start focusing on our real issues. Yeah. I mean, um, I, from my experience being in public office, like there are fundamental issues that can prevent you from getting things done, but then you just, that just means you have to take a different tact for it. And I, I know like, um, kind of my, my modus operandi on this local school board was the fact that I knew I was going to be the majority on some, I'm sorry, the minority on some key issues. So I, I kind of tried to build friendships with my colleagues to see if I could like bring them along because um, like they're the kind of, that's who I have to convince in order to get some kind of change. It's like, how can I um, have that relationship so that when I need them to vote away uh, that I would like them to vote, like I, I've got something I can kind of like some credibility I can bring to that and something I can do to help them. Um, and, you know, that just, that, that, uh, that's not activist like, and uh, it's not something you can just kind of put on Facebook. But uh, I like that's kind of how I've I've thought I viewed my situation in terms. Of, again, um, most issues are not controversial. Many times there's kind of cross party voting, if you will, on particular policies and things like that. But sometimes it's not going to be that way. And, and like, how are you going to be in a position when that 
comes up that you need some votes to maybe swing that you could actually like count those votes and you could even say like i i may i have the credibility with this person in order to get them to think differently um and that requires a lot of credibility because they would have to go against whatever maybe their party says um whatever previous positions they made you know that there's a humility on their respect on their part in order to change their mind publicly in that respect well, think think and think about this and I, I i make this argument in the um in the article is like we should have a a party system that's divides and separates power like our republic right because you know think about this the school board member which i understand that these positions are not supposed to be political mm -hmm. but they are mm -hmm. um so the school board member is worried about what the party wants them to do exactly yeah and the party is way up here in the federal level right and it's it's not a state party it's not a county party it's a it's a federal now there are different layers to this party but we all know who writes the rules for the party it's way and, and who controls the messaging and, who and controls and, the yeah. messaging and everything like that right they're the ones that can advertise on television the local party can't advertise they can't have their own message that's separate from that because they'll never get the money that they need to run for office yeah. so i mean think about how much power is influenced in your local elections by parties you know that is so far away from you and again two choices the school board member has two choices republican or democrat <laughs> mm -hmm. and they have to do what the party wants them to do or they have to face backlash for that like just regular you know mothers and fathers trying to serve their communities are wrapped up in this very large nasty political fight that we're in and how awful is it that that's the system that we're in because we've just accepted it you know, like if you're running for up, well, it's just the way that it is. Mm -hmm. They have the power. So I'm just going to kneel down and kiss. I got ring. that endorsement. And, you know, like I sold myself with that endorsement, you know, that's um, actually. And, and you talked about the national party controlling the television dollars, the state party, uh, at least in, in Virginia, they control the um, the mailer dollars, because if you send your mailer through the local party, you get their special nonprofit rate. Um, whereas if you were not a can, if you're if you're just trying to send it on your own, you have to pay a permit fee. You got to go through the, the whole rigmarole, which is something I did for my campaign to sort of like figure that out. So you can get, you can kind of get that special pricing. But um, if you don't want to have to go through that, you just go through the party's mailer process. They'll they'll send the mailers on your behalf. So obviously they've got some kind of control over that. And then they get you you get a discounted rate because you're sending it as a political nonprofit. So. Instead of, you know, like instead of us peons paying uh, 57 cents to send a first class mail, you get to spend like 30 cents a piece on your mailer. So that allows, you know, that saves you money um, and uh, makes it, you know, just another aspect for a local party to to have kind of control of their candidates and control of the messaging. Yeah, I mean, that's what it that's what it is, right? Like since, you know, we kind of we've walked through the antebellum period and like some of our issues on like what's broken with government but let's step forward into the gilded age and so what happens in the gilded age is the republicans take control mm -hmm. and they move our country into this very corporate society um where the business and the government very intertwined um and everybody kind of seems to prosper or a majority of people seem to prosper life there is a lot of progress but you have these highs and lows in the economies because of it because you know let's face it there's a lot of uh risk involved in progress and some people take more risk than they should um without thinking about the ramifications of that and 
government in a lot of ways is kind of there to manage that on a, on a level. And there was no management of it through the Gilded Age. And it ends up, you know, where business and government is completely tied together and you get the the McKinley campaign. And we've talked about the McKinley campaign before because this is Mark Hanna's the first real, you know, campaign manager. He believes that the most important thing in, you know, politics is money to pay for advertising. And they completely dominate the market. Um, and it really revolutionizes the way that political campaigns move forward. I mean, if you step back and you kind of zoom out and you you kind of like want to pinpoint on the election side, not the government side, but just the election side of what shaped our nation, you can start with um, the 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 third presidential presidential election where you've got Thomas Jefferson and uh, Aaron Burr. Aaron Burr ends up being the vice president, but he he openly campaigns. So that was kind right. of the first first change. And but then, everyone kind of like frowned upon him too. Like he there, he didn't yeah. win any uh, any friends by doing that. Right. And then you fast forward. I think the next one is it's kind of a blend, the corrupt bargain sliding in the Jackson, right? Because mm -hmm. the corrupt bargain leads to Andrew Jackson. It leads to Martin Van Buren and this system of, you know, democracy of, you know, getting the vote out. And they, the way that they do this is through the government, through the patronage system, through the post office, they control, that's the advertising method. Right. It's the means of communication. So uh, Jackson, once he gets in the office through democracy by, you know, going to the people and bringing them out to vote, uh, he gets in there. He solidifies his power with Van Buren by controlling the, the post office, what is basically said throughout the country. Um, and the Democrats use this to their advantage to win office through the antebellum period. Um, and then and then you fast forward to the election side to McKinley you know, um, and the, the advertising and you can jump forward and you can say it kind of swung a little back and forth with, uh, you know, money and the presidential elections, but you go all the way forward to, uh, citizens United. Right. And there's a lot of campaign finance rules, fine, uh, McCain, fine gold, uh, Bilotti, a lot of those in there, but really to citizens United and you open up that flood door, you know, mm -hmm. and you just now, there well, you are. kind of go back more to the way it was, but um, it was sort of a, an artificial uh, uh, dam breaking, and then you're you're kind of stuck with with a lot of you know like if everyone had been used to that, I think it'd be different. But if you go from not having that amount of money influencing it to all this money being available and to that sort of being like the sole focus, so much so that this time around, um, it's basically like DeSantis' super PAC is running his campaign, even though technically they don't coordinate. Like, I just think like. We're probably where we would have been anyway, um, but it it just happened so quickly because we weren't used to it. Well, I mean, I don't, I don't, I don't know if I I catch what you were saying there, but uh... well, so um, you've got campaign finance rules, right? So they they realize there's issues with how money gets spent, so you impose these rules in here, and you keep imposing more and more rules, and so instead of the campaigns happening the way they always did, there's sort of, it gets tamped down, tamped down, tamped down. But then the Supreme Court comes and says, oh, no, no, you no, no, you don't have to follow those rules or those particular rules. And then it springs back to where it would have been, like like so, the corporate I mean, interests running the McKinley campaign. Yeah, so, I mean, and and yes, you, you wrote a whole bunch of bad laws trying to, you know, control the amount of money into campaign finance. Mm -hmm. And then you... <laughs> 
you had a Supreme Court ruling that undid all of it, <laughs> essentially with a new system, you know, and, yeah. and, and it's, and it's, and it's a system of, it's a, it's money laundering. Like, I mean, just so people understand you can, like, I think we've talked about a political, somebody running for office could run for office and they can say, I do not accept money from anyone, any big corporations. And technically they would be true unless they accepted money from their party, which they all do. Right. The party accepts mo money from big corporations. So, you know, the pack allows them to wash where the money comes from. And then they say, well, the money came from the pack. Okay. Well, somebody can come to you and they can build a relationship with a politician and they can say, Hey, maybe they're a really bad person. Let's put this in like, let's, let's use, let's use Donald Trump and Joe Biden as, as examples for this. Okay. Now let's use uh, China as a China businessman dealing with Joe Biden. He can go to Joe Biden. He can say, Hey, I really want this deal done. I'm going to donate a whole bunch of money, very small donations under this amount to, you know, these 37 packs in total, it's about $2 million. And this is what I want you to do. And nobody could really know that it's happening. You know, right. we, we have no idea because there's no way to track it. You know, he could do this through different shell companies and donate to all these different ones. And, and Joe Biden is now complicit in essentially bribery, you know, and that, again, this is a fictionalized story. I'm using Joe Biden because he was, the, he's the president, but um, he's essentially guilty and, and in this system. Now let's use Donald Trump, for example. All right. Donald Trump, you know, let's say he's got some friends in Russia. He wants to build a Trump tower over there. And they're like, Hey, uh, if you do these things, uh, we'll donate this amount of money to these political packs and all of them will fund into you. And oh, by the way, we're also going to invest in these businesses of yours that right. your son, son-in-law and, and daughter have. Um, and it's really hard to track that. <laughs> and it's really hard for us to know as regular citizens what's going on because we're not in those rooms. We're not privy to those conversations, but the rules make it so it can happen. And, and, and it's just a matter of paperwork. Um, right. and, and, and that's the problem is the fact that, you know, we have this system that's completely predicated on, can you file the right paperwork? And if you make mistakes filing the paperwork, maybe you get in trouble, maybe you go to jail, right? But if you have these conversations off the record somewhere, and then somebody goes to file the correct paperwork and they essentially have created, they've done a bribe. I mean, this is essentially, I mean, if you're talking about the president of the United States, either one of them, this is treason. You can't accept money to get something in return for a foreign nation through campaign finance, but it would be legal. It would be legal in the eyes of the law. There'd be no way to stop it because we don't have any rules set up to stop it. Um, and it's bad. You know, I, I, I'm again, I'm not accusing either Joe Biden or Donald Trump of taking these bribes. But what I am saying is that the system is set up that they could. You know, yeah, I mean, it, it is illegal. It's it's an emolument, the uh, infamous emoluments clause that everyone brought up mm -hmm. during the Trump presidency. Like it, it, it's illegal in that sense. But your point is that it's so hard to track that unless you get someone actually come up and say, like, well, I had a phone call with the sitting president, whoever that is. And I said, you need to do, you need to build a bridge. You need to set, get this 
you need to get one of your people in the state department to change this one little bit of policy so that I can do what I need to do. Uh, and then I'm going to, I've got all these shell companies. They're going to donate to pack a pack B and pack C. Uh, and you'll see them out there. And then you can use that and spend that however you want. Um, like, you know, that it's totally happens. Uh, uh, and you can see that you can see how easy it would for, for that to get laundered in there in terms of it's a phone call on one end. And then there's the payoff somewhere down the road that just kind of like gets laundered through and cycles back. And um, I want to say that was a uh, the, a plot line in um, House of Cards mm-hmm. where there's like an Indian casino that was basically funding the DNC according to the the the, uh, the storyline. And um, this uh, the House minority whip, or the House majority whip was flabbergasted that this has happened. But until once he finds out, he kind of like he can see the whole steps for it. So. Uh, I imagine if if we've thought of this and if the writers on a TV show have thought of this, I'm sure unscrupulous people who want um, laws to change in their favor have also figured it out. Yeah. And I mean, and and, and again, that's that's the problem with the system. That's my complaint with mm-hmm. anyone that I run into with power is like the rules are broken. Like stop talking about anything else until you fix the – like the rules of the job that you're trying to that you're running for office are broken your campaign finance laws are broken and you're not talking about them you know like you should know better <laughs> like you should know how important this is you know we could go and you know read the the dissertation on government by calhoun or the federalist papers by madison right i mean they're both talk about how concentrated power is bad they both talk about how balance is necessary and they both fear that when a government becomes concentrated with power and off balance that wealth will take control of it and you know in a lot of ways they're both right and 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 for anybody running for office to just be like well you know it's not winnable i can't talk about campaign finance nobody really cares and it's and again are you giving them the chance you know because back to my i bet in this populist age a populist age you could I, I know. Well, that's the thing that irritates me is they keep on telling me no. And it's like, you don't try. Like, you're not trying. Just give people opportunity. Like, at the end of the day, that's all people need. They need opportunity. Opportunity mm-hmm. is hope. Opportunity is future. Like, you've you've got to create a system that creates opportunity. Plain and simple. Yeah. No, it's true. We need more opportunity. And speaking of opportunities, this Saturday... Saturday. What's going on this Saturday, John? Small Business Showcase 2.0. Out in Great Brewery. Great Man Brewery, Haymarket, Virginia. We've got more businesses and we're going to get more people and it's going to be bigger and better than ever. And speaking of 2.0, we've got $2 pork sandwiches. That's right. $2 pork sandwiches from Patches of Earth. Um, We've got a photo booth. We've got a kid zone. We've got a face painter. We've got tactical trash pandas we got pups valley we got haymarket food pantry this is a big one if you can come out and uh you know this is an opportunity to donate you can donate food you can donate uh uh dollars the dollars go to uh like the basics like uh milk and eggs they buy those to keep because they're you know fresh ingredients so they're always there for people when they come by it's a great organization i stopped by uh on friday and visited them um, they move about 2,000 pounds of food a day, or wow. I think she said a shift. 
um, which is just in crazy, uh, crazy amounts. And with the economy and inflation the way that it is, it's really important for those to ha that have to come out and help those that need just a little bit more. So if you're able to come out and you can bring a donation or something to Haymarket Food Pantry, they will be there to accept it. If you're curious as to what donation you can bring, you can go to the Haymarket Food Pantry website and find all that information there. Um, in addition, we'll have Floss King there again, super cotton candy dude uh, who just he's a, he's he's hilarious. Uh, it's it's dinner and a show, you know, dinner and this absolutely delicious cotton candy. And he puts on, uh, he puts on the show while he's spinning it. Um, and then of course, we're going to have the flannel dino there. I'll be reading for the kids at four o'clock. So bring your young ones out. We'll be reading a little bit of Pete, the cat, uh, Dr. Seuss, some of my favorites, as everybody knows. Um, what else have we got going on there, John? I think we, I think, did I get everything? Raffles? I got most, so I got... uh, giveaways based on, uh, so you come in, sign up, get a ticket. You're not signing up to be on an email list. I'll tell you that. Yes, they are. I'm going to put you on my mailing list. Okay. <laughs> um, well, so you sign up, um, you'll get a ticket, and we are giving away. Uh, we have raffles from local businesses, Giuseppe's, El Vaquero, um, other businesses in Haymarket. Um, so we'll be doing that uh, on the hour, every hour. Again, it starts at 2 o'clock. It finishes at 6 o'clock. And remember, we've got great beer. I've been sipping on it all night long. Uh, this is the Malcolm from Great Maine Brewery, as you all know. Uh, absolutely delicious beer. Quite a swig right there. I know. It was just the last bit. It was the end of the episode. I just figured I'd go ahead and finish it off. Um, so anything else we have going on coming up, John, that we want to talk about? Anything important? I think I think the Small Business Showcase is our focus for this week, and then... And then after that, we have to come up with another focus. What are we going yeah. to do after the small business showcase? I think you should run for Congress. Oh my gosh. All these people keep on telling me I should run. For you know how much money it takes to run for Congress? You know, I was reading a book recently right there, that one. And it said that you, if, if you want to run for Congress, you, you need to be able to raise at least $300,000 like within the first like six months for anyone to take you seriously. It's true. And, uh, the idea of raising $300,000 to get somebody to take my ideas seriously makes me sick to my stomach because I think my ideas are serious without the money. And I think that a system that doesn't recognize that is just rotten to the core. And I, I don't know if I want to play in it. You don't have 300 <laughs> friends that would just write a thousand dollar check for you? Uh, no, I don't. <laughs> I, I don't. Yeah. Well, let's put it this way. I don't have the, I wouldn't go ask 300 friends to write me a thousand dollar check. Well, that's, yeah, I mean, that's, I mean, that's how I felt about it too. It's, you know, um, it feels icky, you know, I just, I don't know. Well, hey, give me this no. money so I can solve your problem. And I'm like, I don't know if really money is the thing that's going to solve the problem here. Money kind of is the problem. It's not necessarily asking people for the money. Like I, I found like I was kind of okay with that, especially friends it's kind of when once someone comes to you and says like, "Hey, if you just give me like five thousand bucks, I'll I'll do X, Y, and Z for you," and then it doesn't pan out, and then you kind of you know if you have a conscience, you kind of feel bad about that five thousand dollars that you know like your friends and family gave you to because they thought you were going to spend it prudently and um, and you thought you were spending it prudently, and then it ended up not kind of being a prudent decision. Like that's where the ickiness comes in. I, I think. Well, it's really hard to spend the money. <laughs> prudently when you don't have enough of the money 
you know, like, I mean, like we talk about and, you know, we're kind of into the show here. I don't want to go back in, but you've got to be able to have money for the, for the mailers yep. and the TV ads. And if you don't have an, and that's a lot, I mean, hundreds of thousands of dollars, you know, that's where most of your money goes. And then you got to be able to pay your staff too. So, I mean, like, that's why you need $300,000 up front because you got to be able to pay for at least two people. And then you got to get that first TV ad out. And if you can't get to that number, every dollar that you bring in is not getting spent. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> so, well, maybe, I don't know, maybe uh, a podcast can take take lightning and then a, a congressional candidate can just run from their dining room or or whatnot. You know, you never know. In today's it happened, uh, that's AOC in a nutshell, honestly. That's... You know, um, but we'll see. But anyways, uh, this has been a great episode, John. It was nice chatting you about Calhoun. Hopefully people don't get mad that we spent the whole episode talking about a slaveholder and, you know, but I don't know. It's just, we, we got to get past this. Well, things. you got to, you got to like, be able to say talk like, about the ideas. You got to be able to say like, this was bad, but then there were also positive things. Like everyone has foibles and everything has, you know, many people have foibles. Oh no, everyone has foibles, but some people have virtues that you can talk about and you can sort of like pull that out there. And so like, I need to email, emulate the virtues and not the foibles. And I think that's what we're trying to do. Yeah. I tell people, if you want to read the book, like dissertation on government, just change everywhere where he uses the word race, change it to either citizen or species, depending on how you want to view this. And then it just makes it, it just, and then you're just, just apply the ideas to yourself and your group, whatever group you are and go, do I want this? And I think you will. So, um, Anyways, this has uh, been a good episode. Uh, again, the next event is the Great Maine Brewery, September 16th from 2 to 6 p.m. You can RSVP on our Facebook page. Uh, John, it's been great chatting with you. And as always, peace and love.